Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 13. We continue in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, We'll start in Mark chapter 13. Uh, We'll pop into Matthew here and there tonight, uh, but we'll try to stay stay in Mark. And of course, like I said, we're, we're working through the Olivet Discourse. Um, now let's just read, let's just read the first 10 verses for today. I don't think we're going to get any further than that. If that far tonight, Mark 13, verse number one, as he went out of the temple, that's Jesus. One of his disciples saith unto him, master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answering said unto him, seest thou these great buildings? There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives over against the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in divers places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues ye shall be beaten. You shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. And the gospel must first be published among all nations. Father, would you help me tonight as I continue this study of the Olivet Discourse? It is a daunting passage. I don't take it lightly, and I sure do need your help with it. Lord, uh, this is tonight's message, much like last week's, is a bit academic. And I do recognize the need for that sometimes, to rightly divide your word of truth. But at the same time, if folks are like me, we come to these midweek services and we need something to pick us up. We need something to give us that spiritual charge to finish out this week strong. So Lord, you're able to take something out of this message and apply it in such a way that people get that need fulfilled. And I pray that that would happen. Help me to preach it and teach it as I should and to bring honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ in doing so, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, the Olivet Discourse, it's uh, the last sermon that Jesus preaches. He's only probably about two days away from his crucifixion. It's the last sermon. It's interesting, his, his ministry on earth is bookended by sermons. The Sermon on the Mount at the beginning, the Olivet Discourse at the end. And there's three basic views, there's, there's a lot of views, but three basic views as to how to interpret this discourse. The first is called the preterist view. And the preterist view is that this sermon describes what will happen from that point that Jesus is speaking until the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Okay, And then there's others that take what's called the futurist view, and that sees most or all of this discourse as taking place in the end times future down the road, well beyond the lives of the disciples. And then there's the third, and this is the one that I hold. We call it a hybrid view. 
And it's the belief that the discourse references events that will take place leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, or the temple rather, and will occur to varying degrees throughout the church age leading into the tribulation and will be fulfilled in the millennial reign of Jesus. I take that position myself. Anybody who says they have completely figured out the Olivet Discourse um, is either lying or self-deceived or under the influence of something. Again, I like what G.K. Chesterton said. G.K. Chesterton was a Catholic, um, but uh, he said something that I think is really applicable here. He said, it's only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside his head. The wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. I think that's that's a good way of looking at it. And so last week, we began with the great title, Background and Introduction. I worked hard on that one. Background and Introduction. Oh, you're going to like tonight's title, too. We began with the idea they had a a mistaken perspective. They were looking at the temple, and they were all fired up about the temple, and they were mistaken in that perspective, and Jesus corrects that. And he gives the master's prediction of what's going to come next. That's verse number two. And then a meeting in private, and we see that four disciples... Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask Jesus three questions. Now, in our text in Mark, we don't have three questions. We have two questions, but the second question is kind of a combination of the last two. So once again, let's, let's be reminded of what Matthew's gospel tells us. Matthew 24, verse number 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, and these disciples we know from Mark is, Matthew, is uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Um, The disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? So what are the three questions that we're going to use as kind of our our, our guideposts throughout this, this study? First of all, when shall these things be? Now, what do they mean by that? When is the temple going to be destroyed? Specifically, what you've just talked about, when shall these things be? All right, what shall be the sign of thy coming? When are you going to establish your kingdom? Because remember, the disciples had not much of a view of the rapture. No Jew did. They were viewing the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now you understand, when we say the second coming of Jesus Christ, we're talking about a two-pronged event. You begin with the rapture in which we go to meet him in the air, and then after the tribulation period when Jesus comes back and sets foot on the Mount of Olives, that is by definition his second coming, okay? His second advent, some people call it. All right. And then what shall be the sign of the end of the world? When is all this going to be over? And then what happens next? Now, one of the reasons that I take what's called a hybrid view of this is because the disciples are asking three very distinct, very different questions. And it is a rare thing to have multiple questions with one answer. So if there's multiple distinct questions, then it stands to reason there's probably multiple answers. And that's one of the reasons that I take this view of the hybrid interpretation of this this passage, because they're asking three things that really, based on my understanding of, of theology and doctrine, can't be answered in a single answer. Okay. So, my title for tonight, buckle up, this one's a... It's going to blow you away. You ready? Part two. (laughs) Principles for proper interpretation. Just send shivers up your spine, doesn't it? Ooh. Man, see, you're not getting anything like this at college, y'all. Jeff Redlin bringing this kind of stuff out. Yeah, I know. (laughs) 
All right, now let me try to explain to you what I'm trying to do and, and why we're coming at it at such a pace. One of the Christmas gifts that Claire got, <clears throat> I think Silas got something similar to this. She got a Lego set of a vehicle. It happens to be a McLaren, but it is very intricate, very, very detailed. And once you're done with it, you know, the steering wheel turns the wheels. And I mean, it's, it's really, really, and she loves that kind of stuff. She's got another, I think it's a Jeep or something. And she loves that kind of stuff. Okay. Now, how many, how many of y'all have done Legos beyond just like Duplo? I mean, okay. Well, y'all got kids? Anyway. Um, all right. With Legos, which for those of you that don't know, are interlocking bricks, okay, um, there's a process. If you want to do it right, there's a process. Now, you can be like some little kids and just pour it all out on the floor and just find the pieces you like. But if you're like me and if you're like Claire, you want to do this thing right, and so you use the instructions, you know, especially with the more intricate ones. All right. Well, last week was the box. It was the picture that you see online on Amazon. We were looking at it and saying, hey, this is, in this is interesting. This is going to be something. That's what last week was. This, you look at a box and you're like, I'd like to put this together. I'd like to save up the $900 it takes. It, not quite that much, but they're expensive. But uh, I'd, I'd like to get the resources to buy this thing and do this. I am really interested in this. And that's what last week's message was meant to be. It was meant to be the box. This is going to be an important, interesting study into this discourse. That's what last week was meant to be. But now... After we've got our first introduction to the project tonight, what we're doing is we're laying out the pieces, and usually they're in different bags, and we're laying out the pieces, and we're getting out the instruction book. See? You say, wait a minute. There's an instruction book for the Bible? Yeah. You know what it is? The Bible. The Bible is its own instruction book, and what we want to do is we want to get the proper instructions for how to do this project. Because if you don't follow the instructions, you can get a little piece wrong here, a little piece wrong there. And if you've ever done these Lego projects, you know one piece out of the wrong place, it's not going to work. There's entire religions that exist because somebody got one little piece out of place. Okay. So... Lord willing, if you'll help us tonight, we're going to lay the pieces out, we're going to get out the instructions, and then next week, we begin assembly. Okay, We take the pieces that we got, and we start putting them together, and by the end, what my hope is, is we'll look at it and go, what a sermon. Not my sermon, his sermon. Not my sermon, his sermon. If you want to say that my sermon, great, I'll welcome that, but you know... We're talking about this Olivet Discourse. I'm going to give you a term. You've heard me mention it in passing. This is a good term to know, and the term is hermeneutics. See, that sends shivers up your spines too, doesn't it? Hermeneutics. I know what you're thinking. All right, Andy, you've talked about how we need this refresher in the middle of the week. I'm waiting for it. Hermeneutics isn't getting it done. Well, what is hermeneutics? It's the science and the art, and it is an art, of understanding, translating, and explaining the meaning of a scripture text. 
And I'm sorry to say that there are a whole lot of preachers out there that give no thought to it. You see, my calling is no more important than anybody else's. If you're following the calling of God, your calling is just as legitimate and just as important as mine is. But in my calling, I handle the most important artifact that any of us have. And that is important. That's why it's so important that I handle it right, that I rightly divide the word of truth. Would you agree with this statement? Without an understanding of how something works, we're not likely to be successful in dissecting and reassembling it. Um, I am pretty confident that I could tear an engine down. I could take an engine apart. I believe I could. But I could not put it back together. You know why? I don't have a good enough understanding of how it works. I can't take the basic elements of electrical equipment, running wire and all that kind of thing, and wire somebody's house. I don't have a good enough understanding of how it works. These are basic things, and I don't have an understanding about it. We would agree with that, and we would not want somebody to tear an engine down or run electrical work or whatever without knowing what they're doing. Well, don't, don't be satisfied with preachers and teachers and even us individually as Christians trying to tear down a passage without knowing what we're doing to put it back together again. What's the putting it back together? It's the so what. It's the so what. So what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about understanding how Bible study works, in particular as it relates to this, this Olivet Discourse, and we're going, to, we're going to get some hermeneutical principles. These are not all of them, okay? I've just picked out a few that I think will be helpful for this study. But what I'm hoping is, is that as you, as you jot these down or remember them or whatever, that this will help you in your own Bible reading, in your own Bible study, as to how to rightly divide the word of truth. Please don't wait till you come to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, or Sunday school to rightly divide the word of truth. That is our responsibility and our privilege to do every day of our lives. All right, so here's the first principle. You ready? Secure your proper context. All right, let me give you a simple explanation of what context is. Context is what is being said or done in the previous and following verses to frame what is being said in the given passage. It is helpful to know what comes before and what comes after a passage to know what's actually being said in that passage. For instance, if you go to Matthew, if you go to Matthew and you look at his account, what you find out happens immediately before this is the Jews have officially and finally rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They're done with him. And that leads in to this. In fact, let's go over to Matthew 24. I want to show you what's going on here. This this is important context. Matthew 23. He's pronouncing woe on the Pharisees, woe on the scribes, 
And then I want you to look what he says in verse 37 of chapter 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how oft would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, watch this, and ye would not. You have rejected me. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's contextually what comes before this. Something that will help you is what I use frequently. These come in computer programs. Um, you can get them in, in phone apps. Um, but if you're an old school guy like me that likes books, I've got a copy of Reese's Chronological Bible. Such a help because he, he, he orders all of this. And uh, you see what comes before uh, each thing, and it helps you contextually. And then you look at what comes afterwards. What comes afterwards. Um, in Matthew's account, and you see it also in, in, in Mark's, are parables. Parables that further this discussion and give us some insight. And I'm still praying about whether or not to include these parables in this particular part of the study. Now, what are you taking into account? What are you looking for when you look for context, when you're reading these passages before and behind? You're looking for historical information. You're looking for grammatical information. Ms. Collins will tell you, grammar, if a basic understanding of grammar is a huge component of understanding your Bible. Now, if you have the opportunity to learn a little bit about Greek and Hebrew grammar, that's even better. But, but at the very least, we ought to know how English works if we're reading an English Bible, right? One of the things that I think, one of the things that I do that if I'm really struggling with a verse is I diagram it. Y'all remember diagramming? You remember diagramming. You love diagramming. You know, you, you subject, verb, and then you got modifiers and all of that. But let me tell you something. That really helps me break down a verse. And you want to interpret it grammatically. You, want, you have, you have a, an interpretation called canonical, which means where it, where it lands in the Bible and how it works and all that. But then literary. Is there a literary device that's being used, something that you can use to give you some insight? All right, so let me give you an example. I know I can tell you're riveted by this. Let me give you an example. Y'all stay with me. We're going to get there. We're going to get into the sermon eventually. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want him. Make me lie down. You know, you know the psalm. Okay. When you start looking at it in historical context, read Psalm 23 like a Middle Eastern shepherd of David's day. It gives you a whole new understanding of what's going on there. How many of us have viewed, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies, and you see this big open field with a table in the middle of it, with food all over it. That's not at all what he's saying. What shepherd in David's day took a table with them anywhere? None of them. What's he talking about? He's talking about the tablelands. 
the mesas, the high flat areas that the sheep could safely graze on. But what's he doing when he prepares the table? I'll tell you what he's doing. He is going through on his hands and his knees, picking out every poisonous plant that's on that mesa. That's called preparing the table. And when a shepherd would do that, he would get up and his elbows and his knees and his hands would be raw and bleeding. But those sheep could go in and they could eat of that grass without any fear because the shepherd had already been through there and suffered so they didn't have to. Hey, do we have an application to make there? I can take on whatever the Lord provides for me without fear because my shepherd has already gone before me and has already bled and has already suffered and has taken the sting out of death itself. I got nothing to fear. See how historical context adds to a passage? What about grammatical context? Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Oh, no, I've got to be baptized to be saved. Nope, that's an easy fix grammatically. Grammatically. What does the word for mean? In order to or because of? Think about it. Hey, thank you for that gift. Are you saying thank you in order for you to give me a gift? Or are you saying thank you because of the gift? Because of. I'm going to the doctor for I am sick. I'm going to the doctor in order to get sick. It may feel like that. I'm going to the doctor because I am sick, right? So grammatically, let's put that in there. Repent and be baptized because of the remission of sins. Does away with baptismal regeneration. We don't have to join the church of Christ. We're fine with grace through faith alone. That's a grammatical context. Y'all with me? Canonical. Where does this fall in Scripture? Well, this particular passage falls in the Gospels, which means you compare the Gospels and you put them together to get your full picture. And then literary. Is there any literary device that's being used? And there's all kinds of Hebrew idioms and things like that that say a lot about what's being said. Okay. So, you've probably heard this before. A text without context is just a pretext for a proof text. What in the world does that mean? It means this. No context means you're just trying to make the Scripture say what you want it to say instead of what it actually says. Can I give you two more riveting terms since y'all are already fired up? There's two things that preachers do. And only one of them we should be doing, but we all do both. And we try to avoid the one, but we all do it. You have what's called exegesis and eisegesis. Exegesis means to pull out. Eisegesis means to put in. Exegesis means I'm pulling out what the text says. Eisegesis means I'm trying to force into the text what I want it to say. Lord, protect me. Fundamentalists are bad about that second one. Now, I am one. I'm not going to stop being one. 
But we are real bad about trying to twist the scripture to say what we want it to say instead of what it actually says. Hmm? And all is quiet. So secure your proper context. So if we're going to rightly divide the Olivet Discourse, we need context. All right, so there's the first bag of parts. We're going to set that right here, context. Okay, number two. When at all possible, look for a plain and obvious meaning. Now, you can't always have that. There's some passages that are just head scratchers. But sometimes the plain and obvious meaning, in fact, usually the plain and obvious meaning is what's intended. I've heard preachers preach long, in-depth messages on the meaning of every building implement used in the tabernacle. You see the nail that held these two pieces together, that symbolizes sometimes a nail is just a nail. Sometimes we can over-spiritualize things and pull a doctrine where there isn't one. You know? Yeah. The Bible says, I will set no wicked thing before mine eye, so no Christian should have a television. Now, it may very well be we would be better off without televisions, but you can't, you can't put those two together. Now, could you use it as a principle for what you watch on television? Absolutely. Absolutely. But to say he's talking about TV, Job is not talking about TV. Job had no idea what television would be. It's not, okay? What's the obvious meaning? The obvious meaning is watch what you look at. That's the obvious meaning. Proverbs, let me tell you something. Sometimes we try to find something. Proverbs is designed to be really simple, for the most part, truths that we just run with, you know? But we get into Proverbs and we go digging. Oh, I think there's something else he's trying to say here. No, young man, he's saying stay away from women in the wrong way. You know what I'm saying? He's saying, stay away from booze. He's saying, don't be a a sluggard and slothful. Real easy stuff. Look for the obvious meaning. So as much as we can in the Olivet Discourse, we're going to read it as it says on the surface and run with it as much as we can. Although admittedly, there's a couple of parts that we can't. Number three. Define your audiences. We've said this before. Audiences matter. Who Jesus is speaking to matters. The intended audience of a book of the Bible matters. Matthew is a book that is primarily intended for Jews. There is very little of it that's directly addressed to the church. Very little of it. Okay? This, once again, ties into historical, grammatical, canonical, and literary context. Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, the audience matters. Go to, hold your place, go to 1st Corinthians chapter 11. I thought I'd get a lot more shouting tonight. No, I didn't. <laughs> All right. 
Now, this ties into context again, particularly historical context. My wife is a lovely woman that has long flowing hair. And a lot of it. I can always tell when she can't find her hairbrush and uses mine. Yeah. I know preachers that preach. Ladies, if your hair's not as long as hers or close to it, you're wrong. And they run straight to 1 Corinthians. Straight to 1 Corinthians. Verse number 15, chapter 11, verse number 15. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. Go back to uh, verse 5. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. See there? goes on to say, For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Well, it seems to me the Bible's saying that all ladies ought to have long hair. My first question would be to you, um, okay, define long. Right? Like, for instance, many would look at Miss Michelle over here and say that that is not long. Unless she were a man then it would be long. Right? In fact, you would not be allowed to come to Granite Christian Academy with your hair that long if you were a boy. Okay? All right. So how in the world do we look at our sisters that have shorter hair and say that they're right with God? I'll tell you how. It's called historical context. The audience matters. Who's he talking to? Corinthians. In Corinth, if you're a woman and you had short or shaven hair, you were understood to be a woman of ill repute. All Paul is saying is, don't look like the world. That's what Paul is saying. Audiences matter. It matters. And if it doesn't, that's how you get into the church applying all sorts of things for Israel that doesn't belong to us. Audiences matter. And so when we're digging through the Olivet Discourse, we have to, we have to take into account to whom Jesus is speaking. Now, does that mean if we identify this particular audience, does that mean, well, this doesn't apply to us? No, it doesn't mean that at all. I'll give you an example. There is a statement that Jesus made that was specifically to a group of people in one place. You may have heard it. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. One of five times we see the Great Commission, right? Was that me? He was talking to a bunch of Jews on the top of the Mount of Olives. So it seems to me that we're not under the Great Commission. We don't have to do it. Wrong. It still applies to us. Well, how does it apply to us? You said audience matters. You're right, it does. But you know how we know it matters? Because if you keep reading the New Testament, 
you see that it's said again to the church over and over and over and over. How do I know that the Great Commission applies to me? Because it is confirmed later. And that brings us to the next one, number four. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Compare Scripture with Scripture. The Scriptures are their own best commentary. Look to other passages that inform what you are studying. For instance, Brother Earl, people love studying Revelation. They love it. They can't get enough of it. All preacher, let's go through Revelation. And my answer to that is no. Because you cannot get from Revelation what you need to get without Ezekiel and without Daniel and without most of the minor prophets. You need all of those. First Thessalonians plays into that. You've got to have all of that if you're going to understand what's going on in Revelation. Why? Because we compare Scripture with Scripture. Right? I dare say in your Bible study you refer to other books other than Revelation in your study on Revelation. I'm pretty sure you do. Because we compare Scripture with Scripture. Why is that so important? Because every one of the 66 books of the Bible were all written by the same author. They were penned by 40 or so different people, but they all have the same author. The Holy Ghost of God. So let's do a little exercise with the Olivet Discourse and see if this comparing Scripture with Scripture works. Matthew, Mark chapter 13 Verse number 7, and when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in divers places, there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginning of sorrows, but take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues you shall be beaten, and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. Is he talking directly to those disciples? Yes, he is. But is there a greater, broader thing that's going on that he's referring to? And I believe there is. I believe he is referring to the tribulation. Not the events leading up to the tribulation. The tribulation itself. Now, why do I believe that? Because haven't you heard preachers say, wars and rumors of wars, Jesus is coming back soon. I don't believe he's talking about when he comes in the rapture. I think he's talking about these are things leading up to when he comes back to come back. Okay. Now, why do I believe that? Comparing Scripture with Scripture. So let's review. What did we just read in Mark 13? Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, troubles, persecutions. By the way, in Matthew's account, he includes pestilences, which is disease and all kinds of stuff like that. Okay? Everybody got that? Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, troubles, persecutions, pestilence. Okay? Now go to Revelation 6. I'm getting a head nod from Brother Earl. I think I'm all right. Revelation 6. Now, when you look at Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3 covers the church age. The beginning of Revelation 4, I believe, is a picture of the rapture. We have a brief scene in heaven. By Revelation chapter 6, we are viewing events that are happening on earth during the tribulation, specifically the first half of the tribulation. Okay? Chapter 6, 
And I saw the lamb opened one of the seals. By the way, what is the seal on? The seal is on the scroll, the book that is identified as the title deed to earth. So this represents events on earth. Who's worthy to open the seals? Who's worthy to hold the title deed to earth? His name is Jesus. The lamb who's becoming the lion. See. And when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard as it were the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts said, saying, come and see. And I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So what do we have in verse number two? We have, I believe, Antichrist. Antichrist conquers the world. Notice he has a bow, but no arrows. He doesn't need to fire a shot. And what's going to happen? We're going to be in this state of abject pandemonium. And a man's going to step forward crying, peace, peace, and he's going to take control without firing a shot. That's Antichrist. Does Antichrist happen before or after the, ra- after the rapture? After. Now, he's going to be alive before the rapture, but he's not going to take power until afterwards. So the rapture has happened. We, the Christians, are gone. Church is gone. Okay? So we know that we're in the tribulation. Seal number two, verse three. And when, I, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So what do we see in verses 3 and 4? We see war. Seal number three, verse five. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see that thou hurt not the oil and the wine. What do we see there? Economic collapse resulting in famine. But by the way, the the upper class people are still going to have what they're going to have. That oil and wine is okay. It's very much reminiscent of the old Soviet days where you had the, you know, the, the peons didn't have anything, but what do they call them, the proletariat? Is that who had the money or was that the regular people? I forget. I'm behind on my social theory. But anyway, um, but you had that one group that were faithful to the Communist Party. They did okay. It was everybody else that had struggles. And that's how it's going to be. So you've got economic collapse and famine and so forth. Seal number four, verse number seven. And when it opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and hell followed with him, and power was given unto, unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. So what do we have there? We have one quarter of the earth's population killed by war and starvation and famine and disease and pestilence and wild animals. Seal number five. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Verse 11, And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So what do we have in the fifth seal? We have martyrdom. Could we say persecution? And then seal six, verse number 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. 
And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every freeman hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? What do we see in seal 6? We see earthquakes, cosmic calamities, atmospheric storms, and so forth. Okay. So what do we see here in Revelation 6, which is clearly during the tribulation, we see war, famines, starvation, disease, persecution, earthquakes. What does Jesus talk about in Matthew 13, 7 through 9? Wars, earthquakes, famines, troubles, persecution, pestilence, and disease. It sounds to me like he's describing what happens in Revelation 6. And none of these things, with the exception of some persecution and some manner of war, none of these things happen leading into AD 70. Jesus is not talking about near future events. He's talking about far future events. That's what happens when you compare Scripture with Scripture. See? Starting to crank up a little bit now, isn't it? Told you. Secure your. Thanks for hanging in there with me. Secure your. Proper context, when at all possible, look for a plain and obvious meaning. Define your audience. Compare Scripture with Scripture. Here's the last one. Define your terms. We get into so much trouble when we don't accurately and adequately define our terms. Meet just about any Mormon you can find out there, and they will tell you they're born again. You know what the problem is? They don't understand the term. One of the most misused terms in all of Christendom right now, I believe, is the term repentance. There's so many people that don't understand what actual repentance is. Repentance is not a work. Repentance is clearly necessary for salvation, but the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. But if repentance is necessary for salvation, then repentance must not be a work, right? Now, we're not going to get into all that tonight, but we need to understand our terms. Even something as simple as believe. We've so muddied up what God intended to be simple. Oh, yeah, it's profound, but it's simple for us. Define our terms. We must always know what we mean in any given term. I'll tell you a good example for this. I had a Sunday school teacher years ago, and it was a college and career class. So I had, I had been, I was old enough and had been through enough education that I knew something about what he was talking about. And it was Christmas time, and he brought a lesson, and he kept referring to the Immaculate Conception. And I never said anything because I didn't want to come off as this know-it-all kid that was trying to make show him up. But he was using the Immaculate Conception to refer to Jesus. But if you understand anything about Catholic doctrine, it's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about Mary. He didn't know his terms. The other kids are just like, me, it bothered me to no end. You know. So know your terms. 
I'm going to give you two terms to think about. We're not going to, we're not going to get into it tonight. But I want to give you two terms to think about as we come back next week and start to take these pieces of this Lego and put it together. Okay? Two terms I want you to think about over the week. Okay? Verse number seven. We're, in, we're back in Mark 13, verse number seven. Two terms to think about because I think these two terms do a lot to help us understand where we need to be on this. Verse number seven. And when ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, be not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. What's the end? The end of what? Because what you define as being the end says, is going to do a whole lot to how we interpret what he says. Is he talking about the end of the church age? Is he talking about the end of the tribulation? The end of the millennial kingdom? The end of, 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 of the temple? What end is he talking about? That's a term we need to define. Number two. Verse number eight. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places. There shall be famines and troubles. These are, here it is, the beginnings of sorrows. What does the beginnings of sorrows mean? Now, these are not the only terms that are germane to what we're studying, but for what we're covering right now, these are the two terms I want you to think about over the next week. The end, the beginning of sorrows. Because if we rightly define those two, that goes a long way to helping us rightly divide this passage. Okay? So we started off a little bit, but we kind of got going towards the end, right? Now I'm hoping, praying, next week we just jump right in because what have we done? We've looked at the box. We're really interested in this. We've gotten out our bags and set them all out and all the pieces out. We got the instructions. We're ready to go. Now next week, with the Lord's help, let's start putting the pieces together. And then at the end of it, what's our goal? Man, what a sermon. Not mine. His.